Thanks for coming, guys, this morning. And uh, we are the next three times together today and two more times. We're going to be talking about um, Discipline 5 um, on the hermeneutic. Um, how do we want to interpret Scripture? And so what we're going to do is, is uh, work through really about the first eight or nine pages of a booklet that we have put together. Um, it's this one. It's called How to Study the Bible. Um, when I was going through the doctoral program at Masters uh, in 06 to 09, one of my friends, um, a longtime friend that I knew way back in, in the Nebraska days, he um, was a year ahead of me in the, in the doctoral program, and he is a missionary pastor in South Africa. His name is Joel James, and the men in his church are men who primarily have will, will have like an eighth grade education. They're English speaking, um, and they don't speak any other language. And they will probably never have a higher education than that. And those are the men that are going to lead his church. Men with an eighth grade education, English only. Those are going to be the elders. And those are going to be the, the pastors of churches that they plant. So how do you equip a man with that level of education to be able to be a man who can shepherd the flock well with the word of God? Um, so we, what he did is for his, his project and his doctoral program is he basically came up with a, a, a course for how to teach uh, guys who only know English, how to interpret the Bible. And so he came up with, with this, and um, we're going to basically cover the first ten pages of it or so. Um, it is the best thing that I have seen anywhere to take guys through uh, how to interpret the Bible when guys are English-only guys, which is what most of you are. Um, you all have a, an education that's much higher than an eighth-grade education, unless you were... In the uh, Tempe Public School, I'm just kidding. That's a joke. Delete. <coughs> Unless you sit over at that table. Just kidding. Nobody's even protesting over there. Mark. Mark. That's just way too much fun. But anyway, this is this is a uh, what you're going to get is is um, I just think it's 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 super helpful in terms of of understanding just the basics of how you want to interpret your English Bible, and um, it's loaded in the last um, 50 pages with exercises and and more instruction. And like I said, we're only going to go through the first 10 pages. If you're going to be in H3, this is like part of the curriculum that you've got to have um, of what you're going to read and, and work off of. It, this this takes you through um, how to diagram, uh, you know, English sentences. Um, verse, and it's, all of its at, um, examples are, are scripture. Um, and so it just, it's really very, very helpful. It's going to teach you about basic um, grammar things, you know, what's a noun, what's a verb. Uh, what's a preposition? 
how, how do these all relate to each other? What's a main clause? What's a subordinate clause? All of that is stuff that um, when you're really going to shepherd people with God's word and you want to do it effectively, if you have knowledge of that, it is extremely helpful. Okay? So, um, anyway, so you're going to want to uh, get this if you can. And all you have to do, if you want it, all you have to do is just email me uh, and say, hey, I'll take one of those. And I'll have Allie in the office print one up for you and get one ready for you. Okay? All right. Let's uh, think through our build disciplines. Where does Discipline 5 sit in all of them? It's the fifth one. Um, you might think it would be wise if you're going to uh, encourage guys to come to the Word of God that <clears throat> the very first thing we should do is we should, we should deal with interpretation to make sure that we get the Word right. Um, and, and that's true. You can do that, and there's nothing wrong with doing that. Um, what we have chosen to do uh, is not cover it first in the year, but cover it towards the end, actually. And the reason for that is because I think that there's a built-in obviousness to words. Um, When we communicate to one another, we understand um, I'm listening to you and I have to discern what you mean. I don't listen to what you say and go, it doesn't matter what he's saying, I'll do whatever I want to his words. Right? And you don't listen to me that way. And if we lived that way and if we treated language that way, uh, this world would be a, a, a bigger mess than it already is. So there's an, there's an obviousness at one level that if you read words, you're trying to get the basic meaning there. And if it's you have a good translation, you're going to be able to understand the bulk of, of what you read in the Bible. Now, obviously, you need the Holy Spirit. You need to be born again. Uh, you need to have the illumination that the Spirit provides. We're going to talk about that a little bit today. Um, you need all of that. But what we focus on first is, rather than what's the right interpretation system to use to approach the Word, we actually start with, listen, be the right kind of man first. Yes, you'll have to turn to the Word to understand what the right kind of man is that you are to be, but focus on being the right kind of man first, and then... As we work on that discipline and we practice that and that begins to flesh itself out in your life, then we'll equip you and arm you with an interpretation system. One of the, the worst things that happens, I, I saw it happen in seminary, I think at levels it, um, it was even evident in my life. Um, a guy gets excited and he gets zealous to be a leader, a spiritual leader. He wants to lead in the church and so one of the first things seminaries do is they take a guy like that. They just take him. There's not a whole lot of evaluation about the kind of man he is. They just take him. And the first thing that they begin to arm that guy with is theology and hermeneutics. And they give him the languages. And they give him all that stuff to be able to teach. And they don't even know what kind of man it is that they are arming with all of that stuff. They don't, doesn't cross their mind to think, what's he like with his heart? What's he doing with his heart? Um, and so one of the things you end up doing is you, you can create, in one sense, a monster. <laughs> or something that's going to come back and bite you. And so the, the, the first thing we want to be thinking about is, look, we need to be the right kind of men. We need to be men who are really after God and his word. 
Um, this is not some kind of mystery code that we can't find God in the words of these pages. No, we can read it and we can see that he's revealing himself. And so we're going to be the kind of men that are going to come to these words in order to see God first and foremost. So that we can draw near to him, so that we can worship him, so that we can fear him, so that we can enjoy him, so that we can express our love for him, our need for him. We're going to be that kind of man. And it is that kind of a man that must have some well-thought-out ideas on how to interpret the Bible. And that's where we find ourselves at this point. So discipline one in place, discipline two in place, that you're not leapfrogging over your home, you're caring for the people in your home, uh, you're ministering the gospel to people, um, you're aiming your life at qualifications in scripture for deacon, for elder, and now you're going to be armed with the hermeneutic that we think is the only one to be able to employ. Um, So that's where we find ourselves today, introducing that. Okay. Now, what I would like to do is I would like for us to have a little bit of small group time. Um, we're going to give us about a half an hour. We'll go till about 20 after. Now, your homework last time was were all of those questions that you can begin to start asking your wife, um, if you have one. Um, you also have some homework to, to possibly... No, I don't know if you will have any homework to hand in or not, because you handed in the green sheets last time. Um, so uh, anyway, what I'd like for you to do is, is that when you go to your small groups, one of the things you can just do is let's just... Just care for one another. How's, how's it going reading the Bible right now? How you doing with that? Do you, need, do you need some prayer? Take the time and just pray for one another. If any of you have the guts to start asking your wife any of those questions, it would be great to hear how that went and is going. Um, but just spend a little bit of time this morning caring for one another. And uh, let's be back in here at 20 after, okay? Because we've got a lot to cover today. All right? Go find your spots. So as we begin to... Uh, talk about the hermeneutic this morning let's let's pray and um, let's ask god for help we're going to be turning to a lot of different passages and uh, we want to make sure that we have his help as we do that let's pray heavenly father we do come before you in this moment to ask for your help as we look at your word lord we um, are trusting in your son for um, our salvation we're so grateful for his powerful converting work that he has done in us by gifting us with repentance and faith in your Son. And your Spirit now indwells us. Lord, we are in and we have all that we need pertaining to life and godliness. Um, We are not lacking in any spiritual blessing. And yet in this mixed condition with um, the flesh, and indwelling sin remaining. We have everything there as well that would distract us and hinder us and harden our hearts and our minds to your word. And so this is where we ask for your help that as a mixed condition and in this new nature that is a mixed condition, I pray that you would um, give us the fullness of your spirit, that we would understand your word so that we would think rightly about how to interpret your word. So God, thank you for this chance, um, this privilege this morning of being able to talk about the presuppositions underneath our hermeneutic. Pray that this time and the next two together would really um, be cohesive, that they would all gel together and make sense in these guys' minds, Lord. Um, That you would unite us around this hermeneutic, Lord, is our desire. 
and uh, we ask for this help, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, presuppositions. These are the things that are the foundations underneath our hermeneutic that we need to talk about first. We could talk probably about a hundred presuppositions that we have, but we're going to limit them to, to five and work slowly through them. Here's the first presupposition. Uh, we presuppose this coming to God's word as we are thinking about interpreting it. The Bible is God's written revelation to man. Um, and this is the way that we've talked about God's word, right? It's important for us to come back first and foremost to the fact that God's word is revelation of himself. It's not a how-to manual merely that is uh, just trying to tell you what to do and what not to do. It does include that. But primarily first, it's revealing a being. It's, it's God's written revelation to us. And thus the 66 books of the Bible given to us by the Holy Spirit constitute the plenary word of God, the plenary inspired equally in all parts word of God. The word plenary just means complete in all respects. These 66 books, we're not missing. God didn't intend for there to be 70 and we can't find the other three. These 66 are the 66 that he intended to give us and every part of them within there is equally inspired as all of the other parts. There's not some parts within it that are more inspired than others. There's not some parts of the Word of God that are more important than other parts. You don't have what is called a canon within the canon. We don't view the New Testament as more important than the Old Testament. We don't view the Old Testament as more important than the New Testament. Every part, every corner, every word, every phrase, every paragraph, uh, every section, every chapter, every... Keep going. All of them are equally inspired in all their parts as the other ones are. I want to take you to a few of these passages. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This is going to highlight the Holy Spirit's role these passages are. Let's talk about the Holy Spirit's role in getting this word of God to us. 1 Corinthians 2, we'll start in verse 7. This is Paul's uh, famous chapter on... um, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Um, My message, my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. This is Paul the Apostle talking. So when he came with a message and he came with his preaching, these were God's words through him to them. And he says in verse 7, we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age have understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. And remember, when Paul talks about mystery, he's not talking about something that's still mysterious. He's talking about a mystery that is no longer a mystery. It was once not known. It has now been made known. Um, That's just about the opposite of the way that we understand the the idea of mystery. Whenever we say it's a mystery, we're talking like, I can't figure it out. Paul says, this is a mystery that has been unfolded. 
Um, verse 10. For to us. Now who is the us that he is speaking of? First and foremost, he's talking about himself and the apostles. Okay? Uh, and there are some elements of this that go beyond him to all Christians, but don't miss what he's saying about himself as an apostle and the others. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. That's how we have the Word of God. It, revealed, uh, it was revealed to them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of a man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those words taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. A natural man who has not been born again by the power of God in the gospel can't even begin to accept the things that the Spirit of God is revealing. Uh, to him, it's just foolishness. He can't understand them. These, there's a spiritual level and dimension to them that are beyond where he is at. So we have the words through the Spirit. We understand through the Spirit. I want to take you to a passage that's not in your list there. You can write it down. John 16, verses 12 to 13. Go to John 16, 12, and 13. Talk about the role of the Spirit again here. That these 66 books of the Bible were given to us by the Holy Spirit. Look what this says. Jesus is speaking to his disciples on the last night, the apostles, and he says in verse 12 of chapter 16, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes... He will guide you into all the truth. How did, how did the, the apostles' teaching become the apostles' teaching? The Spirit of God guided them into truth. It was the Spirit's unique role to guide these men into truth. For He, the Spirit, will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. And continuing on, he'll glorify me. He'll take of mine and he will disclose it to you. All the things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So that's the Spirit's role is to guide the apostles into all the truth. Um, go to First Peter. I'm sorry, Second Peter, chapter one. Familiar passage on. What Peter said, I love this passage. This is so good. And it's good for us to see that um, it, it puts our experiences in, in their right place compared to what the Word of God says. Look at, and boy, did Peter have some experiences, right? Let's back up to chapter 1, verse 16 of Second Peter 1. We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What's he appealing to? His experience. 
Look, I'm not making, I'm not telling you fairy tales here. We saw this stuff. We just telling you what we're just telling you what we saw. We were eyewitnesses of His Majesty, the Majesty of Jesus Christ. When did Peter see the the Majesty of Jesus Christ? He says, verse seventeen. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. This is the transfiguration. That's when he had majesty. I saw that, Peter says. That was my experience. I'm telling you what I experienced up on that mountain. Verse 19. We have the prophetic word, more sure. What is Peter saying? Look, his experience that he had, it wasn't a wrong experience. It's not a, a nebulous, I can't really even nail down what your experience was. It was the real thing. It was the experience of experiences. It was a capital E experience. And what does he say is more sure than even his experience? The prophetic word. The prophetic word is is more sure. To which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns, the morning star rises in your own hearts. What is he telling him to pay attention to? His experience or the prophetic word? The prophetic word. Now, where did this prophetic word come from? Verse 20. Well, know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. How does he know that? Because Jesus told him on the last night, He, when he comes, will guide you into all truth. This spirit is the one who moved us and we spoke from God. Same thing that happened in the Old Testament with the prophets. So, again, number one, the Bible is God's written revelation of himself to man. The 66 books of the Bible given to us by the Holy Spirit constitute the plenary, inspired equally in all parts, word of God. That's undergirding it all. If you don't believe that, there's no sense in us talking about interpretation. Okay? Number two, the Word of God is an objective, propositional revelation. Okay? It's just stating propositions primarily. Okay? Objective propositions, like the Gospel, is primarily the the crown jewel of the Bible. The Gospel is primary proposition. The Gospel is not commands to you. The gospel states facts. It's statements. It's propositions. Jesus Christ was crucified for forgiveness of sin. Jesus Christ was raised on the third day. Those are propositions. And the Bible as a whole is first and foremost propositional. Does it include imperatives? Of course it does. But it's propositional uh, revelation. Uh, Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's take a look at that. Paul, in writing to this fledgling little church in Thessalonica that he was with for maybe three months, he said to them, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, 
you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. It's propositional. It's words about God and who he is. So the word of God is an objective, propositional revelation, verbally inspired in every word. 2 Timothy 3.16. Breathed out by God. Inspired is a word that is um, probably not as, as good a one anymore to use in our day because we have kind of um, dominated the word inspired and, and by that we mean a whole lot of other things. That was so inspiring. Is that what, So Peter was inspired in that way. He was really just inspired by something and he started to write. No, inspired is actually better uh, translated as breathed out by God. The word of God was breathed out by him. The breath of God, the spirit of God, is breathing, breathed out the word of God. And so um, it's propositional. It's inspired in every word that was breathed out. Absolutely inerrant in the original documents, the original writings. Infallible. What does that word mean? It means that it's incapable of erring. God's word is infallible. It does not have the capacity in it to fail. It's infallible. And God breathed. Okay? Uh, you know that we do not have the original documents, right? We don't have the original letter that Paul wrote to the Romans. Uh, but it is so clear, and, and if you want, I can direct you to some reading on this if you, if you want, and we can have some more conversations about this. It is so clear, Josh could tell you about this, because Josh is getting this in class right now um, in the Institute, but um, it is so clear that God supernaturally superintended the preservation of the truth that was in the original documents. If you just take the New Testament, there is, there is no other document that has such a preservation, um, such a preservation as, as this one. Uh, you compare it, you put it up against any other Greek document in that era, or you put it up against any document in any era with its copies and its accuracies, and this makes all of them, in comparison, look unreliable. The way that God is superintended in overseeing the whole preservation process of the New Testament is supernatural. Um, so you don't need to fret that we don't have the originals. Um, God's plan was not to have let us have the originals. We would probably do what with them if we had them? Idol, we'd have wars over them, we'd have all kinds of stuff. Okay. Um, we teach the last sentence of number two we teach the literal grammatical historical interpretation of scripture which affirms the belief that the opening chapters of Genesis present creation in six literal days Genesis 1 and Exodus 31 we're going to talk more about the literal grammatical historical interpretation that's really everything from chapter th or from page 3 on to the end um, it gets summed up there number three Scott? yes Please. The, the literal grammatical historical interpretation is typical of just about everything else we read, too. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but there's nothing unique um, uh, about this, like, well, we only use this when we apply it to Scripture, but you actually use the literal historical grammatical interpretation in every conversation. 
and we'll talk about what that means. Um, you know, words function a certain way, language functions a certain way. Um, there's 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 history. Every conversation has history or context. Every conversation, every word you say has a relationship to the words around it. There's there's grammar that goes on. You may think you don't know grammar, but you use it every single conversation. You use it in your thoughts. And words have a natural meaning assigned to themselves that you understand. When, when somebody says, get the door, you know what the door is. You, the door means something. If someone says, I am the door, you understand even what that means. You know to take words in their normal sense, and if a normal sense isn't, doesn't make sense, then you don't take it in its normal sense. There's just this unnatural use of language that I think literal grammatical historical interpretation has fallen on hard times. It has far more opponents than it ever had. There are, there are even good men who are wanting to get away from literal because they, they feel like it's so strict and confining and it doesn't account for things. It, no, it, this is, there's no other way to put this. There's no other way to see language in this literal grammatical historical. And this right here is the dividing line of all theologies. It just is. How you are going to approach scripture and handle words on a page is then going to... Uh, create categories of theologians. Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit. Number three, the Bible constitutes the only infallible rule of faith and practice. The, the only, again, infallible means incapable of erring. So this makes up the only incapable of erring rule of faith, of what to believe. We don't look at any other book. No other book is needed. No other document is needed that will help us to know the incapable of erring rules and standards for what to believe. This is the standard of what to believe. There's also no other incapable of erring rule for practice of what to do and what not to do. We don't have to look at anything else written outside of this. This is the only book that you and I need to determine what the standard for belief and the standard for living is. In Matthew 5, 18 Jesus says, you know, not the smallest stroke shall pass from the law until all of it is accomplished. In Matthew 24, verse 35, he said, heaven and earth will pass away, but not my words. In John 10, 35, a parenthetical thought in there is that, and the scripture cannot be broken. In John 16, we saw this already in 12 and 13, that the Holy Spirit speaks what he hears and he guides uh, the apostles into all truth. John 17, 17, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. There is nothing else outside that is, that is said of. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 2, 13, these are words that are taught not by human words, but the words that are taught by the Spirit. Skip 2 Timothy for just a minute. Hebrews 4, 12, it tells us, we looked at this early on in the year, that the Word of God is powerful to penetrate and judge even the thoughts of the heart. Second Peter 1, we saw this. God didn't leave prophecy up to the prophet to determine what he was going to write, but they were, he was moved by the Spirit of God. This, this book is unique. And it is the only incapable erring rule 
um, of faith and practice. We don't look anywhere else. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I want to show you the full import of what Paul is saying in 2 Timothy 3. We all know um, verse 16 and 17. Usually we, we, we approach chapter 3 by looking first at verses 16 and 17. Those are the ones that catch our eye because those are the famous ones, right? All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate. He cooks for every good deed. We, we love that. And then we, we might back up to verse 15 and look at verse 15. We like that when we do that. Verse 15, that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. What are those sacred writings? That Paul's talking about to Timothy? The Old Testament. And we love that. The Old Testament is the Word of God. It's breathed out. It's, it's profitable. The Old Testament is profitable. That's a good thing for guys like us who are New Testament freaks to hear. We, the Old Testament is profitable. We need to keep that. But we fail sometimes to go any further up. And that's why I want to push you back up a little bit more. Go all the way back up to verse 10. Who's writing this letter? Paul. Who is Paul? An apostle. An apostle who had the Spirit of God guide him into all the truth. Right? Um, He has received the Spirit who is not from the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we might know the things freely given to us by God. That apostle. And he is writing to Timothy, and he is on his last leg, Paul is here. He's going to die. And he has to hand this off to Timothy, who is overseeing churches in the area of Ephesus. What is Peter supposed to turn to when the apostle is gone? Well, for what we would know, all scripture is inspired by God. Back up a little bit in verse 15. The Old Testament. Depend on the Old Testament, those sacred writings. You know them, right? Is that all? Now watch this, verse 10. Now you have followed my what? My teaching. Paul says this to Timothy. Timothy, you followed my teaching. You followed my conduct. You followed my purpose. You followed my faith. You followed my patience, my love, my perseverance, my persecutions and sufferings. And then he digresses like Paul does oftentimes when he gets to a subject that catches his attention. So he's going to digress for a moment on the persecutions and sufferings. Um, as such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Okay, now I'm done with my digression. Now let me get back to what I was talking about. You followed my teaching, verse 10. Now, verse, verse 13. Oh, I'm sorry, he's not done with the digression. I missed it by a verse. We'll back that. We'll take that part out. Uh, evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. This is it's just what's going to happen. Now, out of the digression, verse 14, you, however, back to you and what I'm asking of you, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Who's he talking about? Paul. You followed my teaching. Verse 10, verse 14, continue in the things you have learned from me, 
Continue in the become convinced of them, knowing from whom you have learned them. Okay, my teaching and verse 15. Here's where verse 15 fits. And that from childhood you have known what? The sacred writings. So what are the two things that Paul is pointing him to? My teaching, become convinced of my teaching, the Apostle Paul. And what else do you have? You have the sacred writings, the Old Testament. What's verse 16 say? What does verse 16 say? All scripture. What is he talking about? His his writings with the Old Testament. This excites me. Does this not move you? Oh my goodness. When he says all scripture is inspired by God, he knows what God is doing through him. You follow my teaching. You become convinced of them. Don't forget the Old Testament. You know the sacred writings because all of it is inspired by God, breathed out by God. He knows what he's doing. You want further proof that the apostles knew what was going on? Go to 2 Peter. You're going to get it anyway. We know this famous one in chapter 3, verse 14. I love this. Therefore, beloved, 2 Peter 3, 14, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. And also in all his letters, speaking in them these things, in which some are are, are, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they also do the rest of the scriptures to their own destru- destruction. Listen, did Peter know Paul was writing scripture? Yeah, he did. Did Peter know he was writing scripture? Did Peter know Peter was writing? Go to chapter 3, verse 1. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember, watch this, the words spoken beforehand by whom? The holy prophets and the commandment, so you, um, the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior by your apostles. So what are you pointing them to? Old Testament and New Testament. These guys knew what the Spirit of God was doing in them, that a new revelation had to come, and indeed did come. Why did it come? Because God had a mystery to unfold that the Old Testament prophets didn't know was coming. What is that mystery? The church. How does this church, Ephesians 3, function and order itself and administrate itself? Where are they going to turn? Mosaic law? Noah? They have to have new revelation revealed to them about what this body is supposed to be. How they're supposed to function together. The Spirit guided them into all of the truth needed to write it out. And therefore, our New Testament constitutes the only infallible rule of faith and practice. The Old Testament as well. But in particular for us, the New Testament Number four, 
God spoke in his written word by a process of dual authorship. That should be obvious by now, and 2 Peter 1 primarily gets at this. The Holy Spirit so superintended the human authors that through their individual um, personalities and different styles of writing, they composed and recorded God's word to man. They did it without error in the whole. They did it without error in the part. Dual authorship. How many authors? Two authors. Divine and human. Daniel. Yeah, I think it's just kind of like the supernatural wisdom of God that they didn't just talk about themselves or the New Testament. So, you know, you couldn't really say, well, the Old Testament, well, we believe in that. That's the word God in the New Testament. That's this other thing that just came later. Like, they include both as a cohesive unit. Yeah. And it's just, uh, I mean, that's like, I look over that so many times, and that's like really good at how it is. Yeah. For yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's no doubt that they're revealing something new that the Old Testament um, couldn't reveal, wasn't designed by God to reveal, but they don't make it so separate, like it's its own separate thing, disattached from the, the old. It is inseparable from the old, um, and we need to hold on to them equally, like Paul did. Follow my teaching, and you got the sacred writings. All of it is inspired. We need to hold on to both as well. Number five, there, uh, while there are maybe several applications of any given passage of Scripture, there is but one true interpretation. Circle the word application. Circle the word interpretation. And know this. The biggest problems you will ever create for yourself with the Bible is when you mix those two things up. Or when you push application into interpretation. Okay? And we'll talk more about that. The meaning of scripture is to be found as one diligently applies the literal, grammatical, historical method of interpretation under the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. We need the Spirit. No doubt about it. It is the responsibility of believers to ascertain carefully the one true intent of the author and the meaning of Scripture, recognizing the proper application is binding on all generations. Yet the truth of Scripture stands in judgment of men. Never do men stand in judgment of it. I want to to give you an example, if I can. Um, Here's the Bible. okay? And let's say over here, um, here's Mosaic Law. Okay? Um, and uh, Mosaic Law is written um, from Moses to Israel, and um, this is where you find meaning. Okay? This is where you find intent, the author's intent. It's rooted in the text. Okay? Um, in Mosaic Law, for example, that was written for people who lived at that time on that page. Um, that was Moses. And Israel for many centuries as they lived in the land and, and did all that. Now, consider this though. What about this Jew? Um, who was in exile? What about... Um, what about this Jew 
What about Jesus and his twelve? Okay, this was written to Jews who were in the land. They were to use the land and constrain all of their behavior with it under Mosaic law. There were things specifically intended for them. This Jew isn't in the land. This Jew is back in the land, but it's not the way that it was intended here. Because the Romans are running everything. What about this Jew? What about Paul after Pentecost? the book of Acts. What's going on there? What about this person? We'll call him a Jew. What about me? What about you? Now, one, two, three, four. I created five categories of people. How many meanings are there? Oh, man, not even one of you fall things. There's, there's only one meaning, right? <laughs> There's only one meaning. How this Jew, Moses, applied it was very near and, and direct tied to its meaning and its intent. But guess what? That Jew in exile had to apply Mosaic law differently than the way Moses did. He had to. He couldn't get to the temple. He couldn't do with the land what they said to do with the land. But that doesn't mean that because there's a different application for him that the meaning is different. There's only one meaning that stays the same. This Jew and others had to go about it differently too. There were certain things they couldn't do with the land under the rule of the Romans. There are same thing here, same thing there. As you and I read Mosaic Law today, listen, how many meanings are there in that text? One. But application what? Varies and changes throughout the generations, right? So just as application changes, doesn't mean that the meaning does. The meaning never changes. The meaning the intent of the author never changes. Okay? Yeah? How does this play, and this is something I've been contemplating for a while, so I'm maybe too big uh-huh. for right now, but how does this play into our interpretation of the Old Testament, the New Testament, and like the sign of Emmanuel and Isaiah 7, you know, because yeah. some of these things seem to mean two different things, obviously. Yeah. With the information, one can mean one thing. Yeah. We can't believe that. Let me let me write one other thing here. Okay, another key word is implication. I would say for you and me, um, I'm hesitant to apply Mosaic Law. There are implications from it, though, that bear on me and on you, but I, I would say we're not to apply it. I want to make that clear for me, and we'll talk about We talked about that before. All right, your question. Here's, here, every single New Testament use of the Old Testament is one that needs to be handled on its own, separate from the other one. Because... Uh, 
There is not one way in which the New Testament writers are using the Old Testament that's true for all of them. And this might, this was an eye-opener for me years ago. Um, we can tend to, I think, slot the New Testament writers into our place. I think we project our position onto them. I'm confined by what kind of interpretation? Literal, grammatic, co-historical, right? And I'm interpreting. But what were the New Testament writers doing? They were actually not merely interpreting. They were what? When they write, it's not merely an, uh, an interpretation issue. It's an inspiration issue. They are writing scripture. You That immediately puts them in a category where I am not and where you are not. Because you and I are not writing scripture. And so what they do when they write immediately puts it in a completely other category than what you and I do. Now, sometimes Paul quotes the Old Testament and his sole purpose for quoting it is to interpret its meaning. And I would say to you that in every single one of those situations, you take them one by one and evaluate them, when any New Testament writer is actually quoting the Old Testament to interpret it, he is using a literal grammatical historical. There are times when a New Testament writer quotes something in the Old Testament, and if he is doing literal grammatical historical, we're in big trouble. Because he actually changed the quote. Okay, that's an inspiration issue under the guidance of the Holy Spirit that is outside of me and outside of you what we do with Scripture. We're going to get to this in our third one. I'm going to give you two examples in the New Testament of when Paul quotes an Old Testament passage. And if you are thinking that what he's trying to do is interpret it, and this is what's so... It's almost humorous to watch commentators. I mean, they get so tied up in knots because they lock themselves into a, he can only be interpreting right now. Oh, no! He's not using a literal grammatical historical. What's he doing? He's got his own apostolic hermeneutic, and I can't even figure out what it is. Well, why would you lock him into that? Maybe he's doing something different. Maybe he's just a godly man who's full of the Old Testament in his mind, and he grabs an idea from the Old Testament of, of when a king would ascend up on a hill, and as he would do, he would receive gifts from the people. But as Paul's thinking in Ephesians 4, oh my goodness, what a, a greater ascension Messiah King did, and he didn't receive gifts, he gave them. So what prompted his thinking? An Old Testament thought. But he didn't confine himself to that Old Testament thought in the Psalms. Because under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit inspired him for a new thought that the Old Testament didn't reveal, but he used the Old Testament as a launching pad to it. I think this begins to clear up every single New Testament use of the Old Testament. But you've got to take each one, one at a time, and watch what the author is doing. We'll get into that in our, about three weeks from now, okay? Or two more meetings from now. Um, all right, so there's your presuppositions. Let's talk about two wrong ways to interpret Scripture, okay? One of them is more dead than the other, but both of them sneak into even our day. 
Throughout the centuries, the Christian Bible, uh, other Christian Bible students have practiced many wrong methods of interpreting the scripture. Here are two common ways that you'll want to avoid. Here's your key question. Are you ready for the key question? This is not in your, in your notes, but I want you to write this down. This will save you in every conversation. This will save you in every thought of your own that you have. This will save you in every, in every conversation you have. What is the controlling line of authority? I know it sounds like a crazy question. I'll explain it in a minute. What is the CLA? Ask yourself that question in every conversation. When you're sitting there, let's see, Daniel, you were just telling me about the, uh, was it you? No, who's, uh, you just told me about the, the, the JW. Did you oh, talk yeah. to him? Yeah. Okay, um, Jonathan was talking to a, a Jehovah's Witness, and he was talking about the way that they were handling Scripture. In every conversation you have with anybody, ask yourself the question, for this person who's quoting Scripture, where is the controlling line of authority for this person? As I'm explaining this passage to my small group about what I've been learning in God's word, where is my controlling line of authority on what this passage means? Okay, now let's walk through this. The allegorical method. An alleg- this is a bad thing. Don't do this. Okay? The allegory, an allegory is a story in which the people and the events of the story have hidden or symbolic meanings Those who interpret the Bible allegorically bypass the clear historical meaning of the text and make imaginative associations between their Christian experience and persons or events in the text. Uh, Here's the idea with an allegory. The way an allegory typically works is that if you're going to understand uh, what the passage means, you need a key for your understanding, and the key is not found in the text, it's found outside the text, somebody has to tell you. Let me give you an example. Here's a famous one of an of a early church father. He interpreted the parable of the Good Samaritan by making the following associations. Watch this. Are you ready? The traveler in the Good Samaritan um, who was attacked represents a person seeking salvation. The robbers represent Satan. Naturally, the Good Samaritan is Christ. The oil and wine, the Samaritan administered to the injured man's wounds, picture the Holy Spirit in forgiveness. The donkey is the gospel because it was the vehicle that carried the injured man to the inn, which is the church where the man recovered. Allegory. It's allegory. It's an allegorical interpretation. Now listen. The things that he said... The things that he said and that he pointed to are all theologically okay things. That's not what that passage is teaching. Where is his controlling line of authority for what that what meaning is that he's explaining? Is it found in the words of the text or is it found outside of the words in his imagination? And... For him to say that the gospel is the donkey is the gospel, how do we know that? Am I bound now that the only thing that the donkey can be is is the gospel? Because it was what if I think it's something else? Is his idea more binding than mine? Or is there a freedom that we all have? You see, I mean this immediately just opens a big wide door for a big old hoop of mess. 
to come in. Okay? Taking the word seriously. Because, because you, you ascend to this intellectual uh, elite, right? It, on the surface, is kind of fun, but in reality, it's not fun. Yeah, um, that's right. Because if, you, if you're out there with the gospel, this is what people believe. Mm-hmm. That, uh, this is what my dad did, stuff like this. Yeah. Everything has some, some really, really cool meaning other than yeah. what they That's right. And what this does, if you look at his next paragraph, it completely ignores why Jesus told the parable. Although Jesus taught the parable to answer a specific question, and the question was, who must I love as my neighbor? That gets ignored. The church father found, quote unquote, a deeper, mystical, not readily apparent meaning for the passage by means of imaginative association. Again, where's his controlling line of authority? It's actually not in the words of the text. It's in his imagination. Okay? So how do we evaluate this allegorical method? The allegorical method actually obscures the true meaning of God's word by ignoring what the writer actually said. Since the plain sense of the text is ignored, there is no means of checking whether an allegorical interpretation is true or not. You have no way of checking whether or not what this guy's ideas are are right or wrong. Your idea, you might have come up in a, in a room with a completely different idea and associations with it that are different than his, and, and how would you decide who's right? An allegorical interpretation tells you more about the interpreter's imagination than it does about God's word. Number two, that one, you don't see that, that's still around today. People still do this. You can turn on your TV and find it. And you'll come across people, sorry, you'll come across some people. <laughs> Did you do that, Tom? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, I was raised in a church where that did this. It, it was all based upon one woman's interpretation. Wow. She had the keys to the scriptures. Yeah. See, that's what you end up being forced to is that somebody's got the key for it to all of this and gets to determine what all the associations are, and you you can't. Um, so. Um, Let's talk about the one that's more tied to us today. Number two, it is the what it means to me or the neo-orthodox method. Neo-orthodox is, is more the technical term for it um, that has to do. Now, this comes in two different brands or two different packages. There's a scholarly neo-orthodoxy and then there's a popular neo-orthodoxy. There's a scholarly what it means to me. There's a, a popular what it means to me. You and I live mostly in the popular what it means to me. So we'll start with the scholarly. The neo-orthodox, or what is called the reader-response method of interpreting scripture, is based on a particular view of the Bible. It has its own presuppositions about the Bible, and it's this. Modern theologians don't believe the Bible is infallible or inerrant. They don't believe the Bible in itself is God's words. That's what this whole neo-orthodox reader-response method is based on. Actually, what the Bible is, is it's merely a record of how men in ages past experienced God. Therefore, it's only suggestive, not authoritative in our day. Because your experience of God might be actually different than what Moses experienced, or Paul experienced, or Peter experienced. So for the neo-Orthodox theologian, the Bible isn't God's word. It becomes, huge statement, 
The Word of God actually becomes the Word of God when you have a significant experience while reading it. So the Bible sitting here all by itself, apart from you, is just some poor collection set of words. Of words, It's just sitting there. And then you open it and you bring yourself to it and you have an, an aha moment. And then the Bible became something significant. That's the way they do it. Okay? It becomes the Word of God when you have a significant experience while reading it. Truth is not the concern. Uh, because that's different for every person. Truth is relative. It's very postmodern. Uh, this is a postmodern view. The issue is how the words strike you as you read them. Okay, what has, what what bears more weight, the the, the words or the person in this? The the words or the reader? Well, how does it strike you? Well, that's what determines what it's going to be. What the original author wrote is merely a tool that assists you in shaping your own concept of God and how to please Him. The view, uh, This view of God's Word is very popular in today's postmodern, everyone is right, no one is wrong academic atmosphere. The reader response determines what the meaning is, not the actual words themselves. And here's what's a crazy maker, here's where the inconsistency always fits, postmoderns, is if you went to the guy, who, let's say you bumped into a, a neo-Orthodox guy like this, and all you'd have to do when you got done listening to his dribble, is say, can I treat your words that way? That you just spoke to me. That they mean nothing until they strike me. So, while you're hanging off the edge of a cliff, by one hand, by both hands, and you're slipping, and you're calling for my help, if your words don't strike me, I don't know what you mean, and so I don't... Can I treat your words the way that you just told me I should treat God's word? And it immediately ends, because nobody functions this way. Nobody ever communicates... In such a way, thinking, you know what, I hope this really strikes them because, because meaning won't be found until it strikes them. No, we communicate with an intent to mean something, don't we? That's the kind of the, the scholarly version. Let's talk about the popular method down at the bottom of page two. This is widespread on a popular level, and it's reflected in the motto, what this verse means to me. How many times have you heard that? Have you been sitting around with, with believers and, well, what this verse means to me is, and, and you know what, to be fair, um, sometimes, it, remember when I told you to circle those two words, meaning and application, or interpretation and application? Sometimes we just get sloppy with those words. And what we mean to say instead of saying, well, what this verse means to me is, sometimes what we're really saying is, how I've applied that is, is this way. That's a better thing to say. That you got to listen carefully when people say that. Instead of just ready to jump down their throat and pound them, say, did, "Did you mean how you apply the passage, or are you telling me what it means?" Because those are two different things. They're connected. One flows out of the other, but they're not the same. Um, God's intent in the in the text is not the concern. The historical theological context is irrelevant. Over to page three. Only how it immediately and intuitively strikes the reader. That matters. Okay? How does it strike you in the moment? Oftentimes in such circles, diligent study is frowned upon. It's even vilified. The reader's intuitive, unstudied response determines the meanings, not the words themselves. So you ask yourself again, where's the controlling line of authority for both of these views, the scholarly one and the popular the controlling line of authority does not run through the pages of this book. It runs through the reader. Okay? 
Now, let's evaluate this. First bullet point, it's based on an errant view of the Bible's inerrancy and infallibility, especially at the scholarly level. I would not assume that about everybody who practices this at a popular level. They, they may believe the Bible is indeed the word of God and infallible and inerrant. But at the scholarly level, it's not. They, they, they're up front about that. Um, second bullet point, the Bible is divine truth. It's not suggestive. It's um, uh, not authoritative uh, human experiences. Those are not the divine truth. These methods fail to recognize um, that the intent of the original author is what determines the meaning. Um, he gives an example. A memo means what the boss who wrote it says it means. And you do not treat your boss's memos that way, do you? He comes to you and says, why didn't you do that? Oh, they just didn't, it just didn't strike me that way. <laughs> you, you go try that. See how that works. Nobody communicates this way. But oh, but when we come to words that claim to be from God, oh, God can't operate that way with his words. Listen, let's just give God the courtesy that we desire with our words. Right? A literal, grammatical, historical interpretation of words. What the Bible meant to the human authors as God's spirit moved them to write is what the Bible means. We don't impose our meaning on what God said. We work to discover the meaning he initially and eternally intended. So again, you want to ask yourself the question, where is the controlling line of authority? As I'm listening to this person talk about what they're saying about Scripture, for them, as they're talking, what's the controlling line of authority for them? Is it their experience? What did Peter say in 2 Peter 1? Where was his controlling line of authority? In his own experience up on the Mount of Transfiguration? No, what was even more sure? The Word of God. The prophetic Word. If I say to my wife and you overhear me, if you overhear me say to my wife, honey, your love to me is like a rose. And you say, now wait a minute. I was just trimming the roses at my house and I got stuck over and over again. Scott means that his wife's love is thorny? That's weird. How do you know what I meant? What do you have to do? You have to ask, who? Me. Those are my words. You can't take your idea and impose it on mine. I might mean that, I might not mean that, but you better ask because those are my words. And the same thing with you and and with one another and especially with God's word. It's interesting to note, um, you know, we just recently went through Genesis uh, 1 to 3, right? Um, just ask yourself the question for the, uh, of Christians who, um, where their controlling line of authority is in regards to Genesis 1 and 2. Where's the controlling line of authority for you in how you view origins? In the actual words themselves? Or do you find people wanting to lift themselves off the page of Scripture and put their controlling line of authority someplace else? Like, and here's... Some of them do it by not lifting very far off the scripture. They they, they lift a little bit off the scripture and they say, it's the genre. This is a a special category of literature called exalted prose. This is such exalted language that God didn't mean to intend that we would actually 24-hour days, come on! This is such exalted language that God, we can't make those kinds of conclusions. Listen, where's their controlling line of authority? 
ask this question. Who says it's exalted prose? Do the words themselves on the pages declare it such? If it doesn't, then it's no different than your imaginative association in the, uh, the Good Samaritan. You are making an association that this text falls in a certain category that therefore defaults you into a way that you cannot take these words literally. Where's your controlling line of authority? And even more obvious, some people lift completely off and they, they put their controlling line of authority in where? Science. Science just doesn't allow me to take these words at face value. Ask yourself the question, where's the controlling line of authority? It's very, very revealing if you just ask yourself that question as you're looking at passages, as you're listening to other conversations, okay? Scott? Yes? It was interesting when you used your illustration for those and what you meant. You said the only way you know is to ask me. That brought to mind another problem that we have sometimes is people who say, I don't know what scripture means, so I ask God. <laughs> and then God revealed to me that this is what it meant. And I think that's a danger in our culture today that you see sometimes in the Pentecostal movement where people do just what we said. You've got to ask God what he meant, and then God yes. Yeah. And, boy... It's a that's a that's a challenging line to navigate because we're not trying to say that you don't need God's help or that you don't need to go to him to ask him for help on what his word means. We are saying exactly that we're in a condition where we need his help. Is he going to respond to me the same way when I go to him that you're going to respond to me if I go to you and ask you, I'm going to, you know. That's a whole other thing that we've got to really be careful about, what we hear and what we think. We have to just rely that God confined himself to, to words. And he confined himself to the relationships that words have to one another. Think about this. God re- confined himself to reveal himself to us in his greatest revelation of himself in words. He thinks so highly of words that one of the members of the Godhead is called the word. So when he constructs words together, we look at them in relationship and much unfolds just by watching the words. God designed it to be that way. Language is that way. Um, so we need God to help us understand what he meant. We've got to be careful to not go in a spiritual direction that would get us in trouble because that's just as subjective as anything else. What we hear, what we think. Um, but we've got to leave ourselves anchored in literal, grammatical, historical use of words. Mark. In, in our, our small group on Wednesday and then also today um, in our small group, the, the topic came up of I saw or heard this thing and it, it, it wasn't right. What should I do? And, and, and then hearing you go through two long ways to look at Scripture. I cannot shape the thought of, of the Jews when they heard wrong things reacted really aggressively. Stoning people to death, ripping their clothes. And, and, and I wonder either either their reaction was wrong or our reaction was wrong where, where we're not asked. That's interesting. So you think that um, you think there are many ways to heaven. 
Yeah, some. I don't want to stone people, but should we react in defense of the scripture like that? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, the the Pharisees, at one level, when they heard Jesus saying the things that he said, they understood clearly the implications of what he was saying. You, being a man, make yourself out to be what? It's for this reason we're picking up rocks and we're aiming at you. And at one level we could say to those Pharisees what? You understand the implications of what was written in the Old Testament. You, you, you understand what it means. And at the same time, Jesus said to them, to his own apostles, um, you're slow to believe all that was written. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer? They didn't get that part. They didn't understand that Messiah would, would, would indeed come and he would be um, divine and suffer. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Christians, we live in a day, we're very influenced by our, don't condemn anybody. Don't condemn. Everybody's, you know, got a good heart and thinking the right thing. You know, we, and, and we're influenced by that and we probably need a little more backbone. But it's hard to have backbone if you don't know what the Word of God says. And so you put two of these two things together. We live in a soft day, and we're soft men about the Bible. And of course, we're not going to come down on anybody. We're not going to stand for truth because we can't. We don't even know where it is. We've got to be men who understand and know the truth, and not be arrogant, not be judgmental, but be defenders of the truth because we've understood what it says. We... We've studied, we've looked, we've, we want to be workmen who handle the word of God with accuracy and carefulness. Um, we need to be a little bit more of that. And at the same time, we're not in a place to condemn. We, we don't have instruction um, from us to, to condemn people, but we do have um, instruction to be discerning and to protect people. When they rented their garments, all, the only judgment on their shirt. But they were also co- they were also commanded to bury him under a pile of rocks. They may have done this first and then they were to pick up rocks and drag him outside the city and, and, and do that. We we have explicit command for what to do with people who are opposing us in our proclamation of the gospel. So, well, to some level, there's something I don't have anything to do with them. Second John, but I, I just go to one of my favorite passages, Second Timothy 2.24. Um, the Lord's servant is not be quarrelsome, kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, and correcting his opponents with gentleness, because God may perhaps grant them repentance. Leading to knowledge of the truth after being captured by the devil to do his will. So, more than we, we don't want to be marked, we, we want to be marked by, by you're mishandling God's word here. This is appalling, this is Satan at work in. How will God work? What kind of man can I be that God will work in to bring them to repentance? What do we do or say to that person? But how does that falseness affect us? Is our is our response? Well, wow, that's interesting. Um, I'm I'm not sure. Or, or, or I said, if we are convinced 
of the truth is our reaction, not, not towards them, not the stoning part of my example, but the rending your garments part of my example, where uh, I don't know what else to do. I, I'm so, uh, yeah. I'm so sad to hear God so badly represented. Well, there, there should be a, I don't think there's, I, I don't think these two things are um, mutually exclusive. I can be, I can be deeply troubled by error and gently pursue and be patient and, and do all that at the same time. Um, I, I may choose, depending on the situation and the, the, the person and how many times it's happened, to communicate outwardly my grief Differently, uh, with maybe with with a, a with a brokenness, maybe at other times with a with 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 a with a, with a, <clears throat> a righteous anger. Um, but I still am called to be. It's very interesting that Paul, in, in the passage that Jacob mentioned, would would actually hold out hope to the one who believes something that's wrong. Um, and and we are the tools of that, um, where God might actually grant them repentance on the basis of the way that we treat them. So we need to have a, a stronger response. We should love truth enough that um, it grieves us when it's that way, but we should love the person enough that we want to be patient and walk with them. I sat with Smed yesterday, and we were talking about a, a, a meeting that we had, and it, this very thing was, was the issue was, uh, feeling, I told him, I said, I'm tempted to be very impatient. I just want to, I just want to, I want to do, I want to be extreme. I want to make a final decision. I want to make a, just yank and it's done. I said, I'm not saying that's right. I'm just, I'm telling you, I need your help. Smed, help me. And there's times when I feel that way because it's just like, oh my goodness, this can't keep going on. You know, uh, but we're called to be patient. We would we would want that from others towards us. Um, it's a good it's a it's a it's a good observation, Mark. We're, we're, we need to we need to be make sure that we're not just reflecting the way that you know passive, gentle, and I don't gentle is a biblical word. It's a good word. Passive, wishy-washy men respond. To error. I don't want to reflect that. How, how would you expect a non-believer to respond when the thing that he holds most dear is reviled? Sort of like a Muslim. Sort of like a Pharisee. How would you... Our world, the problem with America, we don't hold much dear. So you don't see people respond. But, but when, when people go against them that people hold dear, you see it, and those people who say we don't really stand, we aren't going to condemn They'll condemn something as petty as the basketball game today. You'll see something. You'll see. You'll see something. You'll see those people who say we don't hold anything here. Confront. Say. Say homosexuality is wrong. Fundamentally wrong. And you'll see. You'll see a condemnation come. But how, how do you see a Christian respond when what he holds dear, when there's an affront to it? It must be very different. It, don't minimize the response. Don't say, you know, I'll just overlook it. That's, how, that's what motivates my patience and my lack of fighting. But, but no, 
there's a humility that marks us, there's a gentleness. There's a lot of that constrains us for the hope that God could work in us for their salvation. So we don't minimize uh, we don't minimize the feeling, but our response will be absolutely different than the world. Quite as clear the temple in that first step isn't the only yeah. illustration of how the New Testament believers can <laughs> yeah. I'm probably just confessing my own sin out loud I don't react that way I probably know more than well let me tell you about that <laughs> And then they'll say who? Jason. Jason. <laughs> All right. Let me let me finish these next two paragraphs, and then we'll we'll, we'll that'll be our dividing our, our break for today. There's so we looked at two wrong ways, right? Um, an allegorical approach to interpreting scripture, and a what it means to me approach to interpreting scripture. Here's the right way that we want to do it. It's it's and I love these two words. And when you think of literal, grammatical, historical, you need to think of these two words, careful and normal. That's, a, that's another way of summarizing what we mean by literal, grammatical, historical. We're talking about a careful approach to scripture and a normal approach to language. The right way to interpret the Bible is to read it as carefully and normally as possible. In fact, 2 Timothy 2.15 commands that we be careful readers of God's word. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. While not forgetting its unique characteristic, that it is the God-breathed word, we must let the scripture mean what it means based on what the words say. Where's the controlling line of authority in this interpretation? In what the words say. Now listen, good men are going to disagree about what they think the words say. People who hold this one interpretation come up with two different meanings in text all the time. This is not a foolproof. Uh, we live in a very sloppy, messy world with sloppy, messy people interpreting a, a very pure word. And they come up with sloppy, messy, different interpretations. That doesn't mean you shouldn't pursue this. You pursue it anyway, and you be very careful, and you think about the words carefully. Interpretation is not a, a magical or a mysterious process. It is reading carefully and normally, not looking for fanciful allegorical, allegorical or personal meetings. The, you're always going to have to fight your um, temptation, and you do this in, in people's in all conversations. You do this with all words. I do this with all words spoken. I have a tendency to want to project myself and my understandings and my, in, uh, my experiences on what was just said. How many times have you had a conversation with your wife or with your, your child or somebody and you immediately ran down a road only to have to go, oh, that's not what you meant. Well, I, I just took it this way because I, I, I was sure that's what you were talking about. I, was, I mean, I was so sure that was it. But I was projecting what I was thinking on what you said instead. And um, that's going to be your temptation all the time. Psalm 19.10 says... Your judgments are sweeter than honey. Well, what if I'm allergic to honey? And honey is an irritation to me. Does that mean God's word is an irritation to me? 
Of course not. I mean, see, I mean, that's obvious, but we do this. Guys, we do this. We take our understanding of ideas and things and we push them down into the text. That is called... Is it IS at the end? I'm going to look over at the homeschool guy. I think it's IS at the end. I think that's right. Ice. This is this is bad. This is good. Okay. This is me putting my ideas. Oh, that's a funny looking Bible. That's me poor pushing my ideas down into the text. Exegesis is. I can't draw a Bible anymore. Getting out of the text. X means out of. Ice means into. You're going to have to fight this all of the time. You're going to want to push into the text ideas that come to your mind. And what you need is a, a, a way of interpreting that helps just just lets the work, the meaning come right out of the text. That's what you've got to fight for. Okay. Of course, since the Bible is God's book, to understand it, we need God's wisdom. This goes back to what we were talking about with Mark a moment ago. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Psalm 119, verse 18. Having sought the necessary grace to handle the divine message as a carpenter who measures twice and cuts once, we must accurately cut straight the words and sentences of Scripture and the 12 principles that we'll give here, uh, that we'll cover next time, will be the basic guidelines for reading it. Guys, it, it, if you're making something, it, it's always more fun and more enjoyable to, to measure twice and cut once, isn't it? Uh, measure twice and cut once with God's Word, too. Be careful. Um, use a normal approach to language. And next time, we are going to unpack all 12 principles. Um, Together, so you're going to need to make sure that you bring your handout with you next time. Okay? Any other questions or comments that you guys have? Want to add anything? Next year, if you guys, um, if you've been faithful and build this year, and you want to take a ta- a, a, a run at um, H3. Uh, Smed begins here and runs far beyond where we're going and he'll even walk you through this whole process right here the exegetical process of employing I'm going to do one more thing if you need to this helps you understand relationships of words Okay. What, what is hermeneutics? Hermeneutics are the rules, a set of rules for interpreting scripture that you apply. We're going to look at 12 guidelines for interpretation. Okay, So we're talking about this. When you take these hermeneutics and you put them to work, that's called exegesis. It's Applying 
Okay? Why do you do this? Why do you do this exegesis? So that you can do this. So that you can put forth God's word and teach it. This needs to be sourced back into this, your exegesis, which needs to come from a proper hermeneutic. If you don't set this foundation right, what you do here is going to be very funny or inconsistent. Steve. Scott, is, is the word hermeneutics a generic term for principles of interpretation? Yeah. Or is it the term for the grammatical structure? No. It is the first. It's so, a general umbrella. So you could have an allegorical hermeneutic. Yeah, absolutely. That would be, be a great way to talk about it. There is an allegorical hermeneutic. There is a neo-orthodox hermeneutic or a reader-response hermeneutic. And then there is a literal grammatical historical hermeneutic. And, and good men that we love and but don't agree with theologically have um, hermeneutics called like a, a Christological grammatical historical hermeneutic, a a redemptive historical hermeneutic. They have all kinds of different categories that they do because they believe they have some different rules than what the literal grammatical one is that they should follow for interpreting scripture. And so then when they apply it in their exegesis, what what they say comes off of the text and then therefore what they teach is not what we believe. Because way back here, it's a hermeneutical issue. And this is why we make such a big deal about hermeneutics. Because if you get off here, you're going to have a hard time being on target here when you ex, um, put forth, exposit, expose God's word before others. So, next time, 12 principles of interpretation. Let's pray, and uh, we'll be dismissed. Father in heaven, we thank you for words. We thank you for language. We thank you for grammar and, and the way that words are related to each other. We thank you for syntax. We pray, God, that um, these would be words and ideas that would, um, they might be new to us. They might seem um, foreign to us. But Lord, I pray that they would become things that um, are dear to us because we want to apply, um, we want to have the right set of rules for handling God's word, your word. And we want Um, to apply them correctly so that your word can speak freely um, and communicate all that you intended it to say. Also that we can exposit it before others so that your sheep can be fed with the very words that you desire them to be fed with. Um, Lord, we, we need your help. We are flawed and we have everything needed to mess up everything at the hermeneutical level, at the exegetical level, and turn it into eisegesis. We can mess it up at the expositional level. Lord, we are flawed men who need your help. And I pray, God, that you would help us um, to rightly divide your word, that you would raise our love for your truth, even as Mark um, is challenging us to think today, Lord, that we would, that it would grieve us when we hear um, error. But I pray, God, that you would help us to be gentle with one another, patient, make us able to teach so that we can correct one another when we're in error. 
We need your help. We thank you for the opportunity to, to think about hermeneutics. Pray that you would use this in our own lives personally and that it would benefit our families and our ministries that we are involved in so that this church would be strong, that the word of God would be everywhere in our body, rightly understood. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys so much for coming today. See you next time.